Um, I'll be honest, I did. I kind of struggled with what to with what to cover. I uh, just in general, I I always have a struggle when a holiday rolls around. It's kind of like, well, do we do I preach a sermon that's just suited around that holiday, or do I just keep moving forward, or do I try to do something out of the box, or do I stay in the box? And, uh, but I found myself in some, and I went through a few different psalms. And then I actually came across Psalm 136, and I'll be honest, again, just being transparent, this is one of those psalms that I, when I read it, I was like, man, I feel like I've just forgotten that this psalm existed. And I read it, and I reread it, and what, what stood out to me more than anything is something that y'all have already experienced since we did our responsive reading to open the service, what... What stood out to me and what hit me was the fact that it is just so repetitive that every single phrase ends with, for his steadfast love endures forever. And so I read it and I reread it and I, I spent some time just thanking God for all of the things that he's done for us over the last year, four years, uh, life in general, long before Kristen and I even knew one another and just that that mantra, if you will, of His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. And if you've if you've known me for any significant amount of time, then and a lot of y'all have because I've, I've been pastoring here for a little bit of time now. Y'all know that I'm very very big on God is God, God is good, God is sovereign. But if there is if there is a passage of scripture that I will try to weasel into a sermon in any way, shape, or form, it is the promise found in Romans eight twenty eight that God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the reason that I try to remind the church of that so often is because really if you were to ask me Caleb what is there one thing what uh, if there is one thing or what is one promise from scripture that you try to remind yourself of all of the time that would be it when you are really going through a valley in your life when you're going through a hard time when you're grieving when you're mourning but also when you're going through mountaintop experiences where it's just like, man, everything in life is going great right now. Everything is so wonderful right now. Everything just feels easy right now. On the one end, if you're going through the hard time, there is nothing that will anchor you and stand you back up on your feet as reminding yourself God works all things together for good. This pain, this grief, this anguish that I feel right now, God has promised me He's working it together for good. And I can trust in that promise because God is faithful and God is a God whose steadfast love endures forever. This pain, this trial that I'm going through right now cannot separate me from His steadfast love which endures forever. If you're going through mountaintop experiences, there is nothing that will really humble you and keep you grounded like reminding yourself, God works all things together for good. 
that even these mountaintop experiences, all of these, these are gifts from God. We're not experiencing these high moments of life because we've worked so hard or we've just done so great or we're worthy of these things. But God works all things together for good and it is His perfect plan that has given us these moments of life where things are, we are being very successful. Things are going well. We are having some mountaintop experiences, but that's because God is good. It's not because of us. It's because God is good and He's working all things together for good. And I can just about guarantee you that on your way to those mountaintop experiences where everything was going great, you can look back and say, well, that was a low point, that was a low point, that was a low point. All on the way to God granting these mountaintop experiences. And it all goes back to the fact that God is the one who is good. God is the one who is faithful. God is the one whose steadfast love endures forever. If there is one thing that we as Christians must realize that we always have a reason to give thanks and to praise God. If there is one thing that ought to just remind us that we should ever be in a spirit of praise, in a spirit of thanksgiving... It's that God's steadfast love endures forever. Now, before we get into the psalm, I do just want to make this note. In Scripture, when we read of God's steadfast love, which endures forever, that is not some kind of generic love that, well, it, that applies to, to every single person that has ever lived. Is there a common grace or a common love that God has towards all of His creation? Yes. But when we speak of His steadfast love, we're talking of a covenantal love. Well, God has a covenant people and not every single individual that has ever lived is a part of that covenant relationship. So when we speak of the steadfast love of God which endures forever, we are literally talking about specifically the love that God has for His people. Those that are lost, those that are, that are still dead in their trespasses and sin, those that are of the world, they don't know about this steadfast love of God which endures forever. They have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. But we who claim to be the children of God, we should know. We should know. And we should be able to proclaim, I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And His steadfast love endures forever. And, yes, that should drive us to proclaim that message to those who are outside of the covenant relationship with God. Those that are of the world, those that are dead in their trespasses and sin. We should say, there is this love that only the believer knows. Let me tell you of the steadfast love of God which endures forever. The love of God, the faithfulness of God that sent Christ to the cross for the sins of all who believe. We should be zealous to share that message. But today, for us as a church body, I want us to just focus in as believers. I'm looking around at the faces and I've, I've had enough conversation with everyone here. I, I know that everyone here 
professes to be a Christian. So for us as believers, I want us to focus in on the steadfast love of God, which endures forever. Now we read this psalm earlier, and you may be tempted to think, well, this is Israel. He talks about Egypt. They talk, There was a couple of kings mentioned that I have no idea who those kings are. I'm not really familiar with it. Sihon and Og. Who's that? You know, why do these kings matter to me? We've been going through Genesis. All of Scripture is connected. All of Scripture is one great big story of redemption. The things in the Old Testament, even the things in Genesis, point to Christ. You say, but Jesus isn't in Genesis. Oh, yes, He is. The Gospel is in Genesis. The Gospel is throughout. You say, well, Egypt, that's the Exodus. Jesus isn't in the Exodus. Oh, really? There was no Passover lamb? There was no blood of the lamb which protected God's people? That's Christ. That's the Gospel. God is God. God is the faithful God. God is the one true God of all creation. And yes, even in Genesis, even in Exodus, even in Psalm 136, we see the gospel. We see ourselves. What does the Exodus, what does the Exodus represent for the people of God? Israel, brought out of bondage, brought out of slavery, set free and led to the promised land. What does that represent for us? We were in bondage to sin. We are slaves to sin. And through salvation we are born again. We are set free. And we are on our way to a place that God has prepared for us. But in between, there and now, we're, in, we're, we're exiles in the wilderness. This world is not our home. Just like the Exodus. They leave the land of Egypt. They're on the way to the promised land. But in between, there's the wilderness years. And they're sojourners. They are exiles in a land that is not their own. When we read the Exodus, we need to see ourselves. We need to see the connection there. What that is foreshadowing. And so yes, we're going to read of the Exodus, Egypt, people being brought out. But do not say, well, that's Israel. How does this really connect with me? How, what does this have to do with me? Everything. For the believer, when we consider the steadfast love of God which endures forever, we need to be considering the love of God that is first exposed in Genesis and culminates at the end of Revelation. We need to be considering the love of God that we have experienced in our own life that those who have gone on before us have written about in books and commentaries. We need to be thinking about the love of God that our family members have experienced, that we hear from them, and maybe our lost loved ones that have gone on before us, but we hold those memories, and we remember them talking about God, and talking about the things that they had seen God do in their life. The steadfast love of God which endures forever. And we should give thanks. So with all of that, by way of introduction, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. The first statement. 
For us as believers, we need to understand something. There is one thing that is a, that is a non-negotiable. When it comes to what we believe, God is good. When we meet a non-believer, or even if we meet another Christian that maybe they're just, they are just struggling. And they say, you know what? To be honest with you, I'm, I'm starting to doubt that what's going on in my life is good. I don't see how God could bring any good out of this. Or the non-believer who just says, oh, well, how could a good God allow suffering in the world? We as believers have to understand that's a non-negotiable. God is good. All that God does, all that God allows, all that God brings about ultimately is good. Ultimately is an important word. We as believers, we've got to be able to look past the here and now. And look to the promises of God. The eternal truths of God. You ask the average person, hey, is suffering good? Like when you're going through a hard time, do you feel good? No. But you also ask the average person, have you ever learned anything? Have you ever matured as a person? Have you ever grown up as a person because of hard times that you've gone through? They're probably going to tell you, yeah, I've learned a lot of hard lessons in life, but I'm glad that I learned them. Okay, so there is good in suffering. And for the believer, we are told that suffering is the testing of our faith and it draws us closer to God. So without question, we know that there is good and there is joy even in the midst of suffering. God is good. And what is one of the chief ways that we as believers, that we as believers know that God is good? We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We have received, we are the benefactors, the recipients of grace and of His steadfast covenantal love which endures forever. That's how this psalm starts. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. There should never be a moment in the life of the Christian where we lose sight of that. In our lowest moments, in our most painful moments, in our... In our deepest, darkest, most depressed moments of life. At the very least we should say. One thing remains true. God is good. And His steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. There's nothing new under the sun, right? From the beginning there have been false gods. You don't have to get too far into Genesis. You don't have to get too far into Exodus. You don't have to get too far into Scripture at all to see, oh, false gods were already set up. There is but one true God of all creation. The God of Abraham. The God of Isaac. The God of Jacob. The one true God of Israel. He alone is the one true God of all creation. So we as believers need to understand this. When we say the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever, listen, we are talking about the only true God that exists. We're not talking about Allah. We're not talking about the the God of the Mormons. We're not talking about the God of Jehovah's Witness. We're not talking about any other false God, any of the, the, the thousands upon thousands of Hindu gods. We're not talking about that. We're talking about the one true God of all creation. Now now listen. The one true God of all creation has set His love upon us. 
Let that sink in. So this is a real love. This isn't just some kind of love that we hope is true. Like, okay, well, there's a God out there and I believe that He's set His love on me and I really, really hope that it's true. We as believers, through faith, we acknowledge and our hope is in the fact that we have been saved and the steadfast love of the one true God. The steadfast love of the one true God has been set upon us. And for what reason? Did we earn it? Did we deserve it? Oh, far from it. Because He's a holy God. The one true God of all creation is holy. He is perfect. He is just. He cannot, he cannot dwell in the presence of sin. Well, we're sinners. And if you say, well, I'm a good person. I don't really think I sin. And, you know, I think I'm free from all that. Well, you just told a fib and lying is a sin. And so you're a sinner. Okay. And God is a holy God. So even if we have only sinned once in our life, we are not worthy of the love of God. Now that kind of flies in the face of a lot of stuff we may hear today. But the bottom line is this. We are not worthy of the love of God. We do not deserve the love of God. You say, okay, Caleb, well then what do we deserve? Well, He's a holy God who hates sin. We are sinners. Holy God who hates sin. We are sinners. What do we deserve? Punishment. Judgment. Death. But what are we reading over and over and over again here? We're not reading the steadfast wrath of God endures forever. We are reading the steadfast love of God endures forever. We are reading of a miracle. We are reading of the fact that the holy God of all creation looked upon sinners and said, I will make a people for my own possession. I will make a people that is my people. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they deserve? Death. What did they receive? A covering for their sin and their shame. The gospel. What do we deserve because of our sin? Death. What do we receive? A covering for our sin and our shame. And that covering is Christ. The one true God of all creation whose steadfast love endures forever. He has set that love upon us, His people. We ought to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord of Lords. Not only is He God of gods, all the false gods, all of the powerful rulers that have ever existed on earth. All of the powerful rulers that exist right now all over the globe. Even they will bow the knee. At the appointed time. But not only that. Not only do they bow the knee at the appointed time. God himself is the one who puts rulers in position of authority. Even the ones that we would look at and say. Well that's a terrible ruler. They're a bad ruler. They do bad things. God is the one who puts people in positions of authority. And they can only do. And they can only go so far. As his will. And his authority. Sees fit. So in these first three verses, what we have is, give thanks to the Lord for He is good. God exists and God is good. He is God of gods. The only true God. He is Lord of lords. He has, a, 
He alone has all the authority over heaven and earth. He's God of gods and He's Lord of lords. And He is good. That's the first three verses. Then we get into creation. I told you Genesis would be in here. Verse 4. To Him who alone does great wonders. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. To Him who spread out the earth above the waters. To Him who made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. What did we just read about? Creation. There is only one true God and He is good. He is God of gods. He is Lord of lords. And He is the one true God of all creation. Everything that exists. Everything that exists, exists because God brought it into existence. Oh, what have we talked about a lot through Genesis? God who brings into existence things that don't exist. And again, that's a big thought that we would do well to ponder. We would do well to try to wrap our mind around this, even though it is incredibly difficult. There was a time that the world, earth, did not exist. There was a time that trees, birds, deer, they're getting laid out right now and people are getting some good deer meat out of them. None of it existed. Even the very concept, think about this, the concept of agriculture, I know we've got farmers, the very concept of agriculture didn't exist. We've got families here today. The concept of family didn't exist. There was no such thing as family. The concept of marriage didn't exist. There was no such thing. God brought all of that into existence. To Him who alone does great wonders... Only God has the authority and the power to do great wonders. And anybody on earth that has done a great wonder only did it because the power and the authority of God allowed it to take place on the earth. To Him who by understanding made the heavens. To Him who spread out the earth above the world. Now, when you when we read stuff like this, we're reading imagery of somebody who's making something, somebody who's building something. And we would say, well, building something's kind of easy. I mean, he, he stretched out the earth above the heavens, so maybe he's stretching out a canvas. Maybe he's making a big canvas. So that sounds like a small thing, but we're talking about creating the heavens and the earth. That's not a small thing. But to God, it is. To God who considers the nations as a drop in the bucket. Who weighs the mountains and scales. It is a small thing. How great is our God? He spoke things into existence. Let there be light. And there was light. Let everything reproduce after its own kind. And that's the way it still is today. I, I ask Ren sometimes, what does grass make? She'll say, more grass. What do birds make? More birds. What do the trees make? More trees. Right? Where did that concept come from? Why don't you get oranges from apples? Why is there order? When you plant an apple seed, you, you know you're going to get an apple tree. 
When you, when you plant cotton, you know you're going to get cotton. Like nobody has ever planted cotton and accidentally got corn. Why is there not chaos? Because God is a God of order. And He has put things in order. Nobody has ever said, hey, we've got some dogs. We're going to breed these dogs and try to sell them. And then say, oh, we got a litter of iguanas. No. Dogs make dogs. Cats make cats. There is an order to things. Where did that order come from? From the one true God of all creation. From the one true God of all creation. That's right, Ren. <laughs> to Him who made great lights. Now listen. Think about the sun and the moon. I don't care how old you get. Everybody loves a good sunrise. And everybody loves a good sunset. It's one of the most beautiful things ever. And most people, unless they just are soulless and they don't have a heart. Most people, if you walk out on a crystal clear night. There's no glow from the city around. I mean, you're just, you're out on some dirt road somewhere. Or you're out in the mountains and you look up. And you can actually see all of the stars in the sky. It is breathtaking. The wonders of our God. He put the sun in its place. Now, just try to fathom that. Alright, right here. This is where the sun's going. This is where the moon goes. Every single star that's out there. Put one here, here, here. All of the constellations that we... Like, when you go out and you can say, Oh, there's Orion. Who thought that it would be a good idea to put a hunter in the sky? God did. When you go out and you find the Pleiades, you say, whose idea was that? God's idea. And that is even referenced in Scripture, in the book of Job. When God is is asking Job, where were you when I did this? Where were you when I did this? What about this? What about the constellations? What about the Pleiades? What about this? Do you know anything about that? And Job is just left like, no. You alone are God. Why did I ever open my mouth? He made the great lights. The sun to rule over the day. The moon and the stars to rule over the night. His steadfast love endures forever. Again, let it sink in. The God who made the cosmos. God who made the universe. Decided. In His mercy and in His grace... I will choose to love. I will choose to set my love upon sinners. And how will I do that? If they are sinners and I'm a holy God, something's got to take place to remedy that. I will give my son. He will be their savior. I will display my love. The most famous verse in all of scripture. What does it say? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I will display my love. I will let my love be shown in this. I will send my son. He will die for sin. He will die upon the cross. It was the will of the father to crush the son. Why? For the sins of the people. His steadfast love endures forever. And even we, just in a basic sense, we would say, well, somebody who says that they love somebody, but they never do anything about it. Do they really love them? God doesn't just say He loves His people. He does something about it. He loves us to the point that He covers our sin. He remedies the problem. 
He brings close those who were far off. We were far off because of sin. God brings us near through the blood of Jesus Christ. And now we come to the Exodus. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. Now, I do want to say this. Psalms simply are songs. These are things that God's people used to sing. Not many of our praise songs or old hymns that we sing today. In like We don't gather together and we start singing a song where we talk about God who struck down the firstborn of Egypt. We get to verse 18. We don't really sing too many songs where we're praising God for killing mighty kings. It may be difficult for us to think about these things, especially in the cultural climate that we find ourselves in today. But you know, in Exodus and in Deuteronomy, God actually tells His people, when your children ask, why do we do these things? Why do we make these sacrifices? Why do we celebrate Passover? Like, What's the point of all this? He tells His people, tell your children, and I'm paraphrasing, but tell your children what happened in Egypt. Tell your children that I killed the firstborn. In our world today, we're kind of like, we can't talk about stuff like that. To tell our children that God is a God who takes life. God is a God who can can kill. And and that's okay? Yes. God is God. God can do as He sees fit, when He sees fit, with whomever He sees fit. You say, Caleb, how can we find anything praiseworthy? How can we find anything good in the fact that God took the firstborn of Egypt? How is anything good in that? God's people were untouched by that plague and other plagues, but God's people were untouched by that. They didn't lose their firstborn. Why? Because the blood of the Lamb was applied to their doorpost. Signifying what? Those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb will never taste the wrath and the fury of God. But those that are outside of the family of God, what awaits them? Whether in death or whether in the return of the Lord, what awaits those who are outside of the family of God? Wrath. Judgment. Is it fun to talk about? No. I'm not saying we need to go around telling people that with a big smile on our face and say, I got some great news for you. But it's true nonetheless. And for us as believers, we can rejoice because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We will never taste the wrath and the fury of God because we've been set free. How have we been set free? God poured out His wrath and His fury against sin upon His Son. God has no wrath left for His people. God has no fury left for His people in a salvific sense. Why? Because His his wrath has been satisfied in His Son's death upon the cross. To Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. So on the one hand, Egypt loses their firstborn. On the other hand, Israel is redeemed. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm. 
To him who divided the Red Sea in two and made Israel pass through the midst of it, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea. God not only redeems His people. God saves His people in in every which way you can think of. Not even our greatest enemy. In our case, it would be Satan himself. Not even our greatest enemy. Even if they are chasing us down. Even if they are pursuing us with everything they've got. God will make a way where there's no way. God will lead His people through the dry ground. And He will swallow up our enemies in judgment. Now think about that. You say, well as far as this life that I'm living here on this earth... Sometimes I kind of feel like my enemies have caught up with me. And sometimes I feel like I got the devil on my back. And I just, I fail and I can't win for losing. And I just, okay. Our feelings are not the truth. Your feelings will very rarely, if ever, lead you to truth. What is the truth? Sin and death have been defeated for the believer. And it doesn't matter if Satan himself is charging after us roaring and running after us. Jesus Christ Himself prayed to the Father in John 17 before His death, burial, and resurrection. He said, Father, I ask that You keep them from the evil one. We're told in Scripture that the the Spirit is the seal of our salvation, that we are sealed until we receive our eternal inheritance. All of our enemies in a spiritual sense, in a salvific sense, all of our enemies, even if they are pursuing us to devour us, to overtake us, God will protect us and overtake them with the same instrument. In this case, the instrument was the Red Sea. The Red Sea was the instrument through which God led His people across on dry land. And it was the same instrument that God used to swallow up Pharaoh and his army. That God, the God who has displayed His love in the redemption and the salvation of His people, that God who has displayed His love in defeating all of the enemies of His people, His steadfast love endures forever. We are the recipients of that steadfast love. I hope and I pray that even during the midst of this sermon as we're going through, I hope that by the power of the Spirit, that even even as we speak, that some of your earthly fears or your earthly cares or your your earthly, the things that seem big in your head and in your heart, I hope that those things are melting away and washing away even as we're considering these truths of God. Because as we consider the greatness of God and His steadfast love which endures forever, the more we focus upon Him, the more that we set our eyes and our hearts on things above the things of this earth and the cares of this world will rightfully begin to seem much smaller as they really are. And even the things that we worry about, even the things that we stress about, they will start to melt away because we realize, God, if you have, st- if you have set your steadfast love upon me, I don't need anything else in this world. Amen. Whatever you decide to give me, whatever you decide to take away from me, blessed be your name because you are good. And you have given me more than I will ever ever deserve. And you have spared me from what I do deserve. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord, whose steadfast love endures forever. We move on from the Exodus there. To Him who led His people through the wilderness. To Him who struck down great kings. What happened when they, when they were on the way to the promised land? How did they get that land? Well, God struck down great kings. He killed mighty kings. Sihon and Og. And He gave their land as a heritage. I told you Genesis would be in this. What was the promise to Abraham? You'll be the father of a great nation, and you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. To you I will give this land. And your descendants will dwell there. And your, your descendants, your offspring will outnumber the stars of the heaven. How did Israel acquire that land? There were some battles that had to be won. There were some deaths that had to take place. But God fulfilled His promises. And throughout the Old Testament, you move from Genesis to Exodus, on throughout. You get all the way into the age of the, of the kings and you get to the prophets of the Old Testament. God is continually faithful to His people. It's almost like His love is steadfast. Hopefully you'll see what I did there. What does the word steadfast mean? It's not going away. It is always there. It's always there. Even when Israel was fully rebellious against God, even when Israel turned aside to other gods, God still loved them as His chosen possession? Yeah, you got that right. Did God ever have to discipline His children? Yes, severely. Did God ever punish His people? Yes, severely. But God chastises those that He loves. Now consider that one just for a moment. We're not going to dwell on that too long. If you have ever felt disciplined by God, that is actually one of the greatest blessings you could ever receive in life. Caleb, how in the world could you say something like that? Who in the world wants to be disciplined by God? If God does not discipline, if God does not correct, then you can rest assured you're not His child. If God allows us to just go our own way and do whatever we want to do without consequence, then rest assured of this one fact, we don't belong to Him. When God's children go off and try to do their own thing, you can rest assured He will discipline them. To use a southern phrase, you can rest assured He will tear that tail up. He will whip them. Why? Because He loves them. Think about, and again, to use a, an earthly illustration here, if we know of a parent who will literally just let their kids do whatever they want, if we, if we know of a parent who once their kid turns like 10, 11, or 12, and that kid says, well, I'm grown now, so I'm just going to go off and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to make it on my own. And that parent says, okay, we love you, good luck. He'd say, number one, we, we would probably call into question the mental state of that parent, but... Let's just say everything checks out and they're mentally stable. You would say, do you love your child at all? You know what's going to happen. There's no way they can hack it on their own. Do you, do you want detrimental things to happen to your child? What does a loving parent do when a parent sees a child doing something that that parent knows is going to hurt the child, harm the child, even if it's in the long run? What does a parent do? That parent teaches that child. 
that parent corrects that child. And if necessary, that parent will discipline the child. And it's all because of love. Praise be to God that He does not leave us to our own devices. Because if He did, that would be a surefire sign that He does not love us and we are not in His covenant people. Did God have to do those things to the children of Israel? Yes. He disciplined them. He corrected them. He punished them. But listen. Was God's people ever separated from God? No. God always preserved a remnant. And His steadfast love endured forever and still does endure forever. And God's people have always been His. And there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And then we come to the last few verses. It is He who remembered us in our lowest state and rescued us from our foes. He who gives food to all flesh, give thanks to the God of heaven. And that, that right there is really just a summary of everything we've read so far. He remembered us in our low state. When we were in Egypt, when we were slaves, when we were in bondage, when we were without hope, God remembered us in our lowest state. He, he remembered us. He rescued us from our foes. He brought us out of that bondage. And He gives food to all flesh. God takes care of all of His creation. Give thanks to the God of heaven. So in closing, considering those last few verses there. He remembered us in our lowest state. Ephesians chapter 2, Paul tells us that we are saved by grace through faith. It's not our own doing. It is a gift of God. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. You can't get any lower than that. You could add to that, in Romans we're told that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God remembers His people in our lowest state, dead in our trespasses and sin, enemies to Him. And He rescues us from our foes. He snatches us from the jaws of death, as it were. Sin and death have been defeated. (coughs) Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. His steadfast love endures forever. Three things, you don't have to turn there. Three things from Romans 8. <clears throat> One of the reasons that Romans 8 is probably my favorite chapter in all of Scripture <clears throat> is because of the promises that are found there. And how from start to finish, it's there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And it ends with, nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Okay? So if we put road markers in that chapter, three things. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where that chapter starts. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. His steadfast love endures forever. We are free from sin. Nothing's going to undo that. Nothing's going to overcome that. Those who are set free are free indeed. When Christ died upon the cross, He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In the meantime, while we're waiting to be there with Him in glory for eternity, in the meantime, all things work together for good. Now, that is a promise specifically for His people. 
You can't walk up to just any average Joe on the street and say, hey, did you know that God's working all things together for your good? This is a promise for His people. God works all things together for good. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're going to be with Him in glory one day. What about between now and then? He's working all things together for good. And nothing can separate us from His love. That steadfast love which endures forever, nothing can separate us from it. His steadfast love endures forever and He has called us His own. He will not stop loving us. He will not love us any less. He also will not love us any more because He couldn't possibly love us more than He has already displayed and than He has already given us. If you are in Christ Jesus, the love of God has been set upon you. If you are outside of the family of God, the wrath of God rests upon you. You say, oh, that doesn't sound good. Can you tell me how to escape the wrath of God? I mean, that's a... Repent. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. He alone is the Savior of the world. He alone is the only mediator between God and man. If you desire to be made right with God, there is but one place for you to go, and that is Christ Jesus. And praise be to God that as the mediator, He has made peace through His blood. Praise be to God, His steadfast love endures forever. I pray that before we pray, I pray that not just today, I know how busy life gets out there once we leave. I pray that not just today, not just tomorrow, not just through the rest of the week, I pray that it becomes a daily habit for all of us to remind ourselves of these things so that we can give thanks at all times as believers. That we would start to remind ourselves daily His steadfast love endures forever. And that we would give thanks and that we would offer up praise each and every day of our life, no matter the worldly circumstances, but that we would praise God whose steadfast love endures forever. Let's close in a word of prayer.